For the last time this evening, let me express how thankful we are for this time that we have had together this weekend. It has been a very refreshing weekend and a a very encouraging weekend. I was telling Katie as I looked at our our calendar for the beginning part of this year, I told her it seems like we're going to be very busy going here and there, but then I remembered that this is how life is supposed to be. It's supposed to be about being able to go and to visit other Christians and brothers and sisters and places and to encourage them and to be encouraged by you. And that, that's one of the things we really missed over the past couple of years, is that not being the case as often. And let me tell you how thankful I am for having had the opportunity to see you all again and to be encouraged by you. And I do hope that the study that we have been participating in uh, during our time together has benefited you, that you have been encouraged, that you've been motivated, that you've even been admonished. And I think tonight especially will be not only an encouraging lesson, but an admonishing lesson to us, to motivate us to, to love and to good works, but to also boldness, boldness in our faith in this world. Thank you so much for all of your encouragement, for your kindness, and pray God's richest blessings to be upon this church and everything that you do for the glory of God and in his name. May God bless you, and thank you so much for this time that we've been able to spend together. I want to begin in what we know as the Beatitudes, the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 5, beginning in verse number 1. Matthew chapter 5, beginning in verse number 1, when he being Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on the mountain. And after he sat down, his disciples came to him. Then he began to teach them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for the kingdom of heaven is theirs. Blessed are those who mourn. For they will be comforted. Blessed are the humble, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will show mercy. Blessed are the pure in hearts, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called sons of God. And blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for the kingdom of heaven is theirs. You are blessed. When they insult you and persecute you and falsely say evil, every kind of evil against you because of me, be glad and rejoice because your reward in heaven is great. For what? For that is how they persecuted the prophets who were before you. As we continue to think about how we can be a people who are excelling at overcoming the world, we have here a great blueprint in what is Jesus's inaugural address concerning the kingdom as he is introducing this kingdom that he has come to establish by the will of God he declares that these are the type of people who are going to have citizenship within this kingdom and I want you to know that as you display these type of characteristics that it is going to invite negative attention towards you and and that might be something that immediately would cause people to take a step back and and to hesitate concerning joining in this kingdom and being citizens of this kingdom but but notice how jesus how jesus tries to head that off here instead of thinking well well i don't know if i want if i want this upon me notice that he says that you're blessed you're blessed when you are persecuted for righteousness you are blessed whenever you display these these characteristics and people hate you for it and in fact don't think that you're special for this is simply the reality of all who have stood in the way of God. For this, that is how they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Simply put, brothers and sisters, persecution and opposition to our faith in God, it's nothing new. God's people have always been 
encouraged and motivated and admonished to be a people who are overcoming the opposition that they find to their faiths. We can look and we can see this being true of the prophets, just as Jesus has said here. But we can also see the apostles taking a very bold stand in Acts chapter 4. And that's where, we're, where we will be studying tonight. Acts chapter 4 and verses 1 through 31. And I do. I do hope that you'll grant me a bit of patience as we read this text together. Let's read this text of Acts chapter 4 beginning in verse 1. And let's read through this text together to understand what we're doing. And then let's make some observations from the text before we take our lessons away. Acts chapter 4. Acts chapter 4 and verse number 1. This is Peter and John. They are the they. And the place is, is on, on Solomon's colonnade. They've been preaching in the temple complex. And they've just healed a man who has been lame for some time. And it says, Luke records for us that while they, Peter and John, were speaking to the people, the priests and the captain of the temple police and the Sadducees confronted them because they were annoyed that they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection of the dead. So they seized them and took them into custody until the next day since it was already evening. But many of those who heard the message believed, and the number of men came to be about 5,000. The next day the rulers, elders, and scribes assembled in Jerusalem with Annas, the high priest, and Caiaphas, John, Alexander, and all the members of the high priestly family. After they had Peter and John stand before them, they began to question them by what power or in what name have you done this? Then Peter was filled with the Holy Spirit and said to them, rulers of the people and elders, if we are being examined today about a good deed done to a disabled man, by what means he was healed, let it be known. Let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified and whom God raised from the dead by him, by him, this man is standing before you healthy. This Jesus is the stone rejected by the builders, which has become the chief cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to people by which we must be saved. When they observed the boldness of Peter and John and realized that they were uneducated and untrained men, they were amazed and recognized that they had been with Jesus. And since they saw the man who had been healed standing with them, they had nothing to say in opposition. And after they ordered them to leave the Sanhedrin, they conferred among themselves, saying, What should we do with these men? For an obvious sign has been done through them, clear to everyone living in Jerusalem, and we cannot deny it. But so that this does not spread any further among the people, let's threaten them. Let's threaten them against speaking to anyone in this name again. So they called for them and ordered them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. Peter and John answered them, whether it's right in the sight of God for us to listen to you rather than to God, you decide. For we, we are unable to stop speaking about what we have seen and heard. After thre threatening them further, they released them. They found no way to punish them because the people were all giving glory to God over what had been done. For this sign of healing had been performed on a man over 40 years old. And after they, they were released, they went to their own people and reported everything the chief priests and the elders had said to them. When they heard this, they raised their voices together to God and said, Master, you are the one who made the heaven, the earth, 
and the sea and everything in them. You said through the Holy Spirit by the mouth of our father David, your servant, why do the Gentiles rage and the peoples plot futile things? The kings of the earth take their stand and rulers assemble together against the Lord and against his Messiah. For in fact, in this city, both Herod and Pontius Pilate with the Gentiles and the people of Israel assemble together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed to do whatever your hand and your will had predestined to take place. And now, Lord, and now, Lord, consider their threats and grant that your servants may speak your word with all boldness. While you stretch out your hand for healing and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant Jesus. When they had prayed, the place where they were assembled was shaken and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak the word of God boldly. The Apostles' bold stand of Acts chapter 4. We begin by recognizing that Peter and John are taken into custody by the Jewish leadership at the opening portion of this text. And again, it is done following what, what we have as recorded for us, the second great sermon that is presented by Peter in Acts chapter 3, that as they are walking into the temple complex, they see this lame man, and this lame man, you can just see he's getting ready to ask Peter and John for, for some sort of, of grace given, given to them, or given from them to him. It was his custom to come here and to receive, receive uh, gracious favors from people and charity from people. But Peter tells them in, in chapter 3, in verse number 4, look at us. So he turned and looked at them and expected something from them. But Peter said, I do not have silver or gold, but what I do have I give you in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth. Get up and walk. And based upon this, based upon this man, as we come to see, who has been lame for 40 years, based upon him getting up and walking, a great, a great crowd gathers around Peter and John. And they do what the apostles did. They teach. They teach concerning Jesus. And following the teaching of this, as this great crowd has assembled within the temple complex, that's going to garner attention from those who were in charge of the temple, those who were the priest, the captain of the temple police who had been second in charge over the whole temple complex. And the Sadducees, they confront them, they come upon them suddenly. And what they're concerned with is the teaching. The teaching that they are, they are presenting to those who are gathered here may be better understood. And not, not just that they were annoyed, but they were completely exasperated by this teaching. It's actually the same phrase that is used in Acts chapter 16 and verse 18. Remember the, the demon-possessed slave girl that was following Paul around? And it drove him crazy. He just finally, I've had enough. Out of you. Out of, come out of this girl, you demon. Same, same term is used here. So we can understand the frustration that they are feeling towards the apostles. Yeah, I wonder why. Why the frustration? Well, for the priest, for the priest, here we have those who are in, a, in, a, in an authoritative position, position, need more coffee, that they have not authorized. Here are people teaching, and they don't belong to them. That's no good. For the temple police, they're concerned with a crowd. They're all about keeping the peace. The Romans were fine for the Jews to do their thing so long as order and peace were maintained. Here's a big crowd. That's no bueno. That's no good. We can't have that. For the Sadducees, this message was especially disconcerting for them. 
being materialists, being people who do not believe in the resurrection, being people who are also concerned with making sure that they were in, in line with the Romans. Because this teaching, this teaching that was being presented by the apostles, it was not a teaching that was going to help them. In fact, it was a teaching that undercut them. Here they are claiming there is no resurrection. And yet here are the apostles claiming that such is the case. What we see here, I, I like the way Witherington puts this in his commentary on this section of Acts. He says, in short, what we see here are the beginnings of the power struggle for the hearts of the Jewish people. Here is the struggle between the establishment of the Jewish leadership and the gospel that comes through Jesus Christ. Here they are teaching the lordship of Christ. The supremacy of Christ. The resurrection of Christ. Not just of Him, which leads to His supremacy and His, His Lordship, but also the resurrection that comes by Him. And we simply cannot have that from the, mind, from, the, from the perspective of these Jewish leaders. Therefore, they have to seize them. And they keep them in custody until the next day since it's already evening. But notice that the, the damage from their perspective, has already been done. For there are a number of men. They came to be about 5,000. This is 5,000 total, 5,000 on top of the 3,000. I don't know. I can't tell you one way or the other. But I'll tell you, I'll take it either way. I'll take it because I see here the gospel having great success. We see them truly shaking the world and turning it upside down. We come to the next day. The text tells us when their rulers, the chief priests, the elders, those who are heads among the families and such, heads of the community, the scribes are assembled in Jerusalem. Annas, who comes from the, the priestly family historically, and there's Caiaphas, the, the Roman recognized high priest, John, Alexander, all the members of the high priestly family, they all come together. Some of these, we can even trace back to Luke 22. And also Luke 23, who are the same people responsible for Jesus' death. And they have a question for Peter and John that they also have for Jesus. Remember that question? By what power or what, in what authority are you doing this? Who gives you the right to teach in this manner again? Here are unauthorized men teaching a message within their space. By what power... Or in what name have you done this? Now, I wonder a little bit, done what exactly? Is it done the miracle? Is it done the teaching? Is it some of both? I think both of them are definitely intertwined. For it was the healing that led to the ears being opened to hear the message. It was the healing that got the attention and then allowed them to preach the message. It could be both of these. But regardless, Peter seems to take it as being the healing, but he also adds in the message, doesn't he? He hits both of these things that could be talked about here. And it tells us that he is filled with the Holy Spirit, which I believe to be a fulfillment of what, what Jesus says in, in Luke chapter 12. In Luke chapter 12, in verse number 8. In Luke chapter 12, in verse number 8, we read of Jesus preparing, preparing his disciples, and then we see that the apostles carrying this out carrying out this being prepared for the time whenever you are opposed. This thing about Jesus is that the apostles and the disciples of His, they should not have been shocked that this type of opposition began. They should not have been shocked whenever they were 
demeaned and maligned because of the name of Christ. For in fact, we see this in Luke chapter 12, beginning verse number 8. I say to you, anyone who acknowledges me before others, the Son of Man will also acknowledge him before the angels of God. But whoever denies me before others will be denied before the angels of God. Luke chapter 12 and verse number 10. Anyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven, but the one who blasphemes the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven. Whenever they bring you before synagogues, notice this, whenever they bring you before synagogues, and rulers and authorities, don't worry about how you should defend yourselves or what you should say, for the Holy Spirit will teach you at that very hour what must be said. Here is the apostles, Peter and John, stepping into this moment. A moment that Jesus has already warned them is going to come. And Peter does so boldly, for he is filled with the Holy Spirit, and he says to them, rulers of the people and elders, he is cordial. He is cordial here. He is polite and he is respectful in this address to them. He is trying to create buy-in. In this moment, if Peter goes in guns blazing, the ears are going to be shut. He's probably not going to make much progress. But he recognizes the honored position many of these men fulfill. Therefore, he addresses them kindly. Rulers of the people and elders. If we are being examined today by the good deed done to a disabled man, by what means he was healed, listen up. Listen up, because I'm going to tell you right here in this moment, I'm going to let it be known to you that the power of Jesus is at work. Peter here boldly lets it be known that the power of Jesus is at work. And he does so through the, through the guidance of the Holy Spirit it gives to him and is granted to him to have at this moment. Let it be known, verse number 10, not just to all of you who are here, not just to y'all, but to everyone, everyone within Israel. Let, them be, let it be known to them that is by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth. Now here comes the whammy. This one who, Jesus, who God has exalted and you murdered, but that God has raised. It is by this man, Jesus, whom God exalted and you killed, but he raised up. It is by him that this has taken place. This man, based upon the power of Jesus, is standing before you here healthy. As we read what Peter says, maybe we can read into his words a little bit. Because here, as I think about this, this is what I understand him saying. We have done a good deed by the power and the authority of Jesus. Are you who murdered him going to punish us for a good deed? A good deed that anyone in the ancient world would praise someone for doing. Would you dare punish us for a good deed whenever you are guilty of murder? Surely not. But, Peter says, you know, shouldn't be surprising because it is this Jesus who is the stone rejected by you builders. Psalm 118 and verse 22. This Jesus, the stone rejected by you builders, has become the chief cornerstone. Let it be known that there is no salvation in anyone else, for there is no other name under heaven given to people by which we must be saved. 
know what's interesting about Psalm 118 and verse 22? Is that it's given in a context of God versus the nations. The nations outside of Israel. Therefore, what Peter has done here within this text is he has said that the nations, not Israel, but the nations of the world, the place that they have occupied for so long as those who have rejected God wholesale, they have actually, actually been replaced by the Jews here in this moment. That is no longer the nations that are standing diametrically against God, but it is you Jews who have killed the Son. And you are still rejecting the message that He has given us to share. God has vindicated him, yes. But you are still rejecting him today. And you need to know concerning verse number 12, that if you reject him, you reject it all. For there is no one else. There is no hint here of religious pluralism. We are told there is a narrow way. What an absolute dogmatic statement that Peter makes. And it must be one that we, with the same sort of boldness and enthusiasm, not just accept, but proclaim ourselves. Now, once the Jew Jewish leadership hears what's said, they, they have to start scrambling. They have to start going into damage control mode. Because this message now has not just been heard by however many thousand in the temple complex, but now they have heard it as well. They've heard the very specifics of it, and they recognize that these people are problems. This Peter and John and anyone associated with them, they are very problematic because they have a message. They have a message that hurts. And not only do they have a message that hurts, but they recognize that they have a boldness about them. And what's interesting in their minds concerning Peter and John is the fact that they are, they are seen as uneducated and untrained men. Literally, it carries the understanding of being men without letters. Being men without credentials. Certainly, they recognize that these were men who had not received proper training from the Jewish schools of Hillel or, 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 or Shema. Shema, excuse me. And yet, even with them not having gone through these schools and even with them not having what seems to be a formal education, they see this boldness and they see this knowledge and you can almost see it. You can almost see them just looking at them and, and seeing that there's something familiar about them and then it hits them. Oh, no. This is a couple of those men who have been with Jesus. They're not just speaking about Him as if they've been taught by someone else. But they are speaking about Jesus based upon first-hand knowledge. They had been with Jesus. But not only that, but they had the obvious miracle that had happened right in front of them because here is the man who had been healed standing with them. And I love Luke's, Luke's statement here that they had nothing to say in opposition. I almost imagine Peter, Peter and John standing there and say, Cat, got your tongue? I can't hear you. How do you want to respond to this? And the reality is they can't. Therefore, they have to usher them out. They have to gather everyone here. And they have to, they have, to have a team huddle. And they have to figure out what are we going to do? And they admit 
they admit that an obvious sign has been done to them, which ought to bring them on the resurrection. So the thing about Matthew's account of the resurrection, the Jewish leaders there recognize that something had happened, which is why they have to concoct this, this story in order to not allow what truly happened to become well known. They have to pay people off for that. Well, here we have an obvious sign again taking place, but here's the difference. The difference here is the fact that people have seen this. It is very clear to everyone living in Jerusalem that this man who has been lame for 40 years is now healed. We can't do anything about this. We can't, we can't do anything about this at all. So what are we going to do? We cannot deny it, so let's, let's just put the heat on. Let's put the heat on them by, by threatening them that they cannot speak any further in this name. That's what they do. They call them and they say, hey, we can't deny it. You know that. We know that. Everyone knows that. It happens. But if you keep it up, if you keep speaking in this name, there are going to be severe consequences. And yet here is the boldness of Peter and John once again, because they answer to them, whether it's right in the sight of God for us to listen to you rather than God, you, you decide. You make that judgment. You are telling us. That we should listen to you instead of listen to God. As religious-minded people, Peter and John say, how do you think that's going to work out? What would you do in our situation? But then there's also a very interesting, I think, historical note here that original readers would have understood. Is that this statement by Peter and John is very similar to the defense given by Socrates 400 years previously. That Socrates said something extremely similar. He said, I shall obey God rather than you. And while I have my life and strength, I shall never cease from, from the practice and teaching of philosophy. What's the understanding then that the Jewish leadership should have understood? What's the understanding that the, the readers very well might have picked up on? Well, if we know the end of Socrates' story, he was killed. In this moment, this was his trial. This was his defense. And he was killed. What are Peter and John saying? We're ready to die for this. We are ready to die for this message. We are ready to die for this message that God is declaring through us and that you are simply rejecting. Surely that must have stopped the Jewish leaders in their tracks. But again, what can they do here in this moment? They can't do anything. And what separates this again from the trial of Jesus is the fact that in the trial of Jesus, there's so many parallels between this trial and the trial of Jesus. In the trial of Jesus, the crowd was with who? Was with the Jewish leadership. They were supporting that. It wasn't released to us Jesus. It was released to us Barabbas. And crucify him. But in this moment, that's reversed. For now the people were giving glory to God over what had been done. And the Jewish leadership said, knows I, we can't get rid of these guys. Or we will have an uprising on our hands. That's the motivation to let them go. That's why this turns out different than what happened with Jesus. So they are released. And what we find is that the apostles and the fellow disciples, they pray for continued boldness for the Lord. It tells us that they go to their own people. That being a familial term. Here specifically a spiritually familial term. And they report everything that took place. This is what the chief priest said to us. This is what the elders said to us. So this is how we're going to respond. They gather together and they raise their voices together. They raise their voices to God and they acknowledge him as master. They acknowledge him as creator. 
The same word that is found in Revelation 6.10 for Lord. The one with great power and control over any and all circumstances. Lord, you are the one who made the heaven and the earth, the sea and everything in it. And you said through your Holy Spirit, by the mouth of, of, of our father David, the servant, they quote here from the Septuagint of Psalm 2. Why do the Gentiles rage and the people's plot futile things? The kings of the earth take their stand and the rulers assemble together against the Lord and against Messiah, his Messiah. And they recognize that this has already played out in the story of Jesus, hasn't it? He said this has already played out, that the Jews have stood up against Jesus, that the Gentiles have stood up against Jesus, that the kings and the rulers oppose Jesus. In fact, in this very city, they say together, Herod and Pilate and the Gentiles and the Jews, they all assembled against your holy servant Jesus, the one you anointed, the one who you said would carry out your plan. And they did this because you determined that it would take place. They acknowledged fully the sovereignty of God here in this moment. And they recognized that what was written beforehand has been played out in the story of Jesus. But I think what they also see here is that there is another echo of this, of this psalm being, being taking place in their life right now. Yes, it took place first in Jesus' life, but it is now echoing in their life, for they too are facing the same opposition. Therefore, they say because your way is being opposed at this moment... Because there are many who are standing against you. Lord, we want to acknowledge that your intentions are what matter. And we want to acknowledge, Lord God, that your side is the victorious side. The first few verses of this prayer, 24 through 28, are a preamble. They declare the situation, but then in verses 29 and 30, we see the Therefore, God, will you please? Now, Lord, consider their threats. Verse 29, may your justice reign in this moment. May you recognize and see the evil that is being, that is being perpetrated against us. And based upon that, we ask that you would grant that your servants may speak the word with boldness. With boldness. And we know and we trust, Lord, that while we do this, that you will show your support for us in doing this because as we're working, we know that you'll be working. We know that as, as we are spreading the word, that your power will be seen through the signs and through the miracles and through the wonders that the exact same thing we saw in chapter 3 will continue to move forward. And that is what we see. We ask that you would, would do that, Lord, that you would work with us and do it through the name of our Lord and your holy servant, Jesus. And the text tells us that when they prayed, when they had said these things, that the place where they assembled was shaken. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit. I believe very much, very specific to the request. This is not a, a second Pentecost or anything of the sort. This is specific to this request. And based upon this request and the Lord's response, they were able to do exactly what they asked to do, which is to speak the word of God boldly. That they would be empowered. They asked God, please empower us to be your witnesses. And they are empowered in this moment and moving forward to be God's witnesses. What do we learn from the boldness 
of our brothers and sisters who came before as they stood here in this moment? What can we learn from their example? And the first thing that we need to recognize is that the world will always be annoyed by the message concerning Jesus. That the world will always be exasperated by the message that Jesus is the Christ. That He is worthy of devotion, recognizing Him as Lord. The world doesn't want to hear that, do they? The world doesn't want to hear that because that means that humility is in order. That means that submission is in order. That means their desires have to take a back seat. That means they are now accountable and responsible for the desires of another. And the world doesn't want to hear that, do they? So we should not be surprised, brothers and sisters, that as we not just teach this, that not just as we proclaim this with our words, but as we do so with our actions, we should not be, su- be surprised when we are opposed. We should not be surprised whenever we are called weak-minded. We should not be surprised whenever we are called spineless. We should not be surprised at all whenever we are demeaned and ridiculed for showing ourselves to be the servants that we must be. The world doesn't like that. The world wants to see strength. The world wants to see power. But in Jesus, in Jesus we are called to be humble servants. The world doesn't want to hear that. The world doesn't want to hear, friends, the resurrection that comes through Jesus. They don't want to hear that once that day comes and the graves are up and up, that those who have gone before, that, that there will be an accounting. That there will be a reckoning. They don't want to hear that they will have to answer for the lives that they have lived. For then again, they are responsible to change and live live according to the one who will judge. They don't want to hear that. Friends, again, don't be surprised when we preach and teach the resurrection and people call us crazy and superstitious. Don't be surprised whenever that happens, friends. The world will always be annoyed by the message concerning Jesus. And we will be opposed by that. And not, I, shouldn't, I shouldn't even be talking in future tense. We are opposed by that, are we not? We are opposed for the message that we carry. And yet, a bit of encouragement concerning that is the reality that there is no message worth suffering for other than Christ. There is no other banner that we carry that is truly worth suffering for. No political banner. No national banner. No athletic banner. No hobby banner. No other banner is worth suffering for other than that of Christ. And that's what scares people from flying the banner is that it does do as we have talked about. It invites suffering. It invites opposition. And yet, if we think about the reality of the gospel, I cannot, I cannot but think that our response must be the exact same as Peter and John in verse number 19 and verse number 20. Specifically, verse number 20. We are unable to stop speaking about what we have seen and heard. I wonder, 
I wonder and I fear if we have not truly embraced the reality of the gospel to the degree that we ought to. And I question whether that is the case or not. Because I know, sadly to men in my own life, that there have been many times where I am very much able to stop speaking about what I have seen in the power of the gospel and what I have heard. And that to me is an absolute confirmation that my faith isn't what it ought to be at times. If our faith is what, it sh- what, it, what God desires for it to be, and if we truly recognize and embrace the reality of the gospel, that our sin leaves us condemned, and that we are saved by absolute amazing grace, and that God looks to, to restore us in faithful service, that he, he looks to bless us now and in eternity, then how can I but fly that banner? And yet I must recognize again that if I fly the banner, I must be prepared for the opposition. I must be prepared for the suffering. And yet what that should lead us to and then finally is this recognition. Number one, recognizing that opposition is basically guaranteed the world hates the gospel. The, world is, the gospel is the antithesis to the way our world, world operates. And knowing this, we should be willing to suffer. If we're, and if we're willing to suffer, then we must recognize that there is great value in focusing our prayer on the need for boldness. Might I even say instead of a desire for deliverance. Have you noticed that about this prayer? In Acts chapter 4, that within this prayer, I don't see, I don't see a request that it stop. I don't see a request that the opposition be hindered. I don't see a request that it be weakened. Instead, what I see is them asking that the Lord see it, and that the Lord then enable them to then stand against it with boldness. Now, why is that the case? I think it's the case because of our first point there. The reality of opposition. They are praying for boldness because they recognize that the world is always going to world. That the evil world that we live in, the broken world that we live in, it will always be wicked. And wicked people who live in this world, that's what they do. Don't expect that to change. Therefore, be bold. But here's the crazy thing about it. If we're doing the work, and if the work finds the right hearts, and guess what? The world has changed. Therefore, it comes full circle. We pray for boldness to speak against the opposition. And we pray for hearts to be softened to receive the message. 
And in return, we see the opposition lessen as more and more come to faith in Christ. Therefore, we see the mindset of these brothers and sisters. They recognize that the world is just going to do what the world does. Therefore, we have to do what disciples are to do, which is to make more disciples. Now, is that to say that we can never pray that opposition be lessened? No, of course not. I believe that's very fair. And that shows what this whole prayer is about. This whole prayer is an expression of complete dependence on God. And in praying those prayers, again, we are expressing that complete dependence. We are expressing that He is sovereign, that He is just, that He sees, that He enables. And yet, brothers and sisters, let me encourage us all to not pray for deliverance to the extent that we neglect the prayer for boldness. Because again, the world is going to world. We are so, pardon me please, we are so spoiled to live when we live and where we live. Because the anomaly that has been the United States of America for the last 300 years or so is not the historical reality. Christianity from her birth has been persecuted. And yet we are just blessed by God to live in this time. And I say blessed by God, and yet I wonder, I wonder, I wonder if the relative peace and acceptance that Christianity has in this place has weakened our resolve somewhat has caused us, to, caused us to somewhat be soft in our Christianity. That because Christianity is, is totally accepted where we are, are we then less fierce about it? Are we then less bold concerning our faith? Think back in history. When were the times whenever Christianity grew the most? Was it not in times where opposition was strong and fierce? It was. That's what we read even here in the book of the Acts of the Apostles. So my encouragement is, do not fear opposition. Do not fear it. I know we don't like it. I know we don't want it. I'm not wishing persecution on anyone, us or our children or our grandchildren. But let us never fear it to the extent that we would rather pray that it stop than pray that we be bold. We see that here in the example of Peter and John and the disciples that are gathered here. May that example convict us and admonish us to greater faith and trust and service in God. Because that's how we overcome opposition, with greater faith, with boldness that leads to greater trust and greater service. And at the end of the day, as we consider these things, we are left with these truths that in a world that is hostile to the gospel message, this is our prayer. This is our prayer as they prayed here in Acts chapter 4, that may our God strengthen us with boldness to stand upon the cornerstone that is salvation, yes, salvation now, but resurrection later. And that these two things, salvation and resurrection, are only found through knowing Jesus as Lord. If we know and are convinced that Jesus is Lord, we will be like Peter and John and not able 
to stop talking about and in sharing that. And when the opposition arises, may we follow their example in the same way and not necessarily pray for deliverance, but pray for boldness. Boldness that we may continue to speak whatever the consequences might be. For let us not forget, as we read at the opening from the Beatitudes in Matthew chapter 5, Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for the kingdom of heaven is theirs. You are blessed when they insult you and persecute you and falsely say every kind of evil against you because of me. Be glad and rejoice because your reward is great in heaven. May God bless and strengthen each of us to be a people who are overcoming opposition to our faiths. Let's pray. Master, you are the one who made the heaven, the earth, and the sea, and everything in them. And you said, Lord, through the Holy Spirit, by the mouth of David, your servant, why do the Gentiles rage and the peoples plot futile things? The kings of the earth take their stand and the rulers assemble against the Lord, you, and they assemble against our Lord, the Christ, the Messiah. And Father, as we, as we exist as your people today, we face opposition as well. And Father, we ask that you would see this opposition. And we ask in the same way that you would grant that we would speak your word with boldness. Help us, God, to be bold when we are slandered. Help us to be bold whenever people are, speak evil against us. Help us, Lord, to be bold when we truly suffer for the sake of your, name, of your Son's name, Jesus. Father, when this happens in our lives, we ask that you would help us to rejoice. Help us to be glad, knowing that we have been counted worthy to suffer only in the way in which your Son suffered. Father, through his patience and endurance, and through the patience and endurance of those who came before us, the apostles and brothers and sisters of the first century, through their example, God, we are convicted. We are admonished. And I pray that we are encouraged that when that time comes, that we will respond in the exact same way. And in doing so, may your name be honored and glorified. Thank you, Father, so much for what we've been able to do this weekend. I pray, Father, that each and every person that has taken the time to participate has been strengthened within their faith, that we have all become more resolved to be overcomers, to be those who conquer this world and everything that stands against you. And again, Lord, it is our prayer that it is all done to your honor and glory. It is in Christ, our Savior, our Lord, the Messiah, that we pray these things. Amen. If you are here this evening and you recognize that the main opposition that you find within your own life is the fact that you are opposed to God, 
that you find yourself at odds with God, that you find yourself rebelling against the will of God, then can I remind you something I stated earlier that they recognized the realization and the fact that it is God's side that is victorious. And it is not a victory that simply allows us to gloat or to boast in the fact that we won and you didn't. But it is the fact that being a part of that victory is a glory and a praise to the one who makes the victory possible. It's no lie, and it's no surprise to any of us that sometimes we become discouraged because it seems as if in this life things just aren't going well. Yet may we never lose sight that again our God wins. And the theme of the gospel is that our God reigns. And that he will have the victory. And that he can do so even in our, li- in our lives. As individuals and as local churches. And if you realize that you need to get to the victorious side, whether that be through committing your life to Christ, through faith and a responsive baptism, or whether, whether you're someone who has, who has walked from the ways of the Lord and you've joined, you've joined the enemy and you've been opposed to God in His ways, come back. Come back to to His people. Come back into this chosen, wonderful nation. Come back to this temple of the Lord. Restore your service. Rejoin the, the victorious side and enjoy the blessings that come with Christ. That opportunity is for you now or for anyone. Whatever your need is, we want to serve you here this evening if we can. We invite you to come now as we stand and as we sing.